0: Hello all. Today is a bonus episode. It is not part of the Metropolitan Man storyline, it's just me interviewing an author I like. I figured, since I got my own podcast, I can do this sort of thing now and then, as long as it doesn't interrupt the regular schedule. My interview is with Ada Palmer, who wrote To Like the Lightning. It's a book that isn't really a rationalist book, necessarily, but it's definitely rationalist-adjacent. It was recommended on the Slash Rational subreddit, and it was reviewed both by Ozzy from Thing of Things and me over at Death is Bad. So it's at least gotten some attention from the community. I personally think it's a wonderful book. I love the hell out of it. In the first half of the interview, we stick to non-spoiler things, so you can safely listen to the first half even if you haven't read the book yet. In the second half, we get into spoilers. I will interrupt the interview briefly to let you know that spoilers are coming. You can keep listening if you like, but this book is more reliant than most on some of the twists and reveals and in what order they're presented in the storyline. If you have any interest in reading the book at the point you get to the spoilers, I seriously recommend stopping, getting the book, and coming back to this episode after you've read it. The podcast will still be here one sad note we were having connection issues throughout this episode you'll notice a few times when the audio was a little shaky and a couple times we had disconnects and had to start over the technical difficulties also ate up some of our interview time unfortunately anyway i've linked to this book on amazon at the podcast's homepage, hpmorpodcast.com and i hope you enjoy the interview hello hello there thank you for getting online with me before i introduce you is it ada or ada Palmer? how do you pronounce your name
1: I pronounce it Ada Palmer when I'm in America, although if I'm in Italy doing work, everyone says Ada because it's a normal name over there, but Ada for
0: American purposes. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Are you Italian then?
1: No, but because professionally I study Italy, I spend about a third of every year in Italy doing work, so I'm constantly going
0: for Nice. Yeah, that's got to get expensive. Is that paid for by the university or anything? Well,
1: the university pays. The university pays for a lot of it, and I'm often staying with scholars who are over there, so I'm on somebody's couch or or staying with an institute. So it's not that bad.
0: Nice. That that sounds kind of fun, actually.
1: It's pretty wonderful, actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Okay, so I am here to talk with you today about To Like the Lightning because I read it and I loved it and I had a bunch of weird mixed feelings about it and then you said that you would join me on my podcast, so I'm very happy. My pleasure. Uh, I wanted to start with, like, right at the very beginning, we get, uh, trigger warnings.
1: Ah, uh, yes, the permissions page, the tag.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, I really like those because they, they do warn you about things that are going to happen, which, in a lot of books, it doesn't feel like they're necessary, but in your book, since it starts out so nice and wholesome and non-threatening, um, I really feel the trigger warnings help a lot. How, what were your thoughts on the trigger warnings when you first started the book?
1: I mean, my, my original thought was, because I was modeling this in many ways on an 18th century book and wanted it to have that presentation, 18th century books always have this page at the beginning with the censor's permission for the thing to be printed. Well, specifically, French books did uh and so i wanted to imitate that and you can learn so much about a world by seeing what that world censors what that world permits and what institutions in that world have the to censor or permit particular things so just as i as a historian when i'm reading a period text i learn a lot about that period by seeing who is giving permission for it to be printed and what they are worried about whether they're worried about religion or politics or sexuality i wanted to do the same thing for my future
0: oh no i think i lost you are you there uh so last thing i heard is you were saying um when you do historical research you learn a lot about the time period and the place by the the uh permissions at the front
1: Exactly. And so I realized that I could do a lot of world building and at the same time as introducing the historical framing, at the same time as introducing actual functional trigger warnings for the real reader.
0: How, uh, if you don't mind me digressing, how do you feel about trigger warnings in general? Because I know that they're usually frowned upon in literary circles.
1: Uh, I think that they are really useful in some circumstances and and not in others. I think that especially when you're talking about communities who are sharing literature with each other, they're really useful, uh, and that they become problematic only when people are trying to require them in particular ways that can interfere with discourse. So I think that the uh, they are, like many tools, appropriate in some circumstances.
0: Since we're sticking on the historical aspect right here, mm-hmm. the book is written in what... Uh, having read it, I now consider it an enlightenment style. I don't know if you would call yes. it that, where yes. uh, <laughs> where the protagonist actually talks to the reader. Mm-hmm. Why why that style? Uh,
1: I was I was struck by that style when I first encountered it in 18th century literature, particularly in a book uh, by Denis Diderot called *Jacques the Fatalist*, which is what the quotation at the beginning of the book is from, and. It's a it's a strange experience reading that kind of book in contrast with most because the direct addresses to the reader on the part of the narrator create a kind of personal relationship between the narrator and the reader, very different from when you're reading a book and the narrator is sort of a, a mind that you're entering and through whom you're witnessing something. This is much more like you're sitting in a room and someone is telling you something. And it becomes
0: very intimate very quickly.
1: Yes, it does become very intimate very quickly, and I, I that's rarely done, and I was excited when I encountered it by the power that that creates uh, and the special relationship it makes because it makes the reader constantly very aware that what you're getting is a kind of curated narrative being crafted by uh, the narrator, but also there's this level of intimacy where the narrator is clearly trying really hard and wants you to understand and doing everything for you, uh, and it creates a very particular kind of relationship so that when you then uh, see the character in distress or learn things about the character that make you unhappy or uh, the character fails you or that apologizes abjectly, it's just a very different emotional experience from most texts. And when I encountered it in the Enlightenment uh, work I was reading, I wanted to then try that myself.
0: And it immediately gets across the sense that this is just a person and the narrator is fallible, where, where a lot of works, the, it, you know, the narrator is supposed to be omniscient and everything you read is correct.
1: Right. Or, or you're in the limited perspective of a particular narrator, but the narrator is always sort of straightforwardly and cleanly giving you what they witness, uh, so that you're viewing it through a witness. Where here, someone is trying to write a history that writing a history is hard. Sometimes <laughs> the person messes up. sometimes the person struggles to get things across. Sometimes there's a character who does something and the character the narrator really likes that character and wants you to like that character, but the thing they're doing is bad, and the narrator will struggle to, to balance that out. And uh, it makes you very aware of the curated experience that you're having, but not with any kind of adversarial "haha, I'm tricking you kind of relationship uh that you sometimes get with people who are doing unreliable narrators this is a narrator who's unreliable and desperately apologetic whenever he's unreliable
0: i I think i recall at least one occasion where he said i was not there for this event so this is my interpolation but i think this is probably what happened
1: (laughs) yes Uh, and he talks about why he dares to interpolate at particular points and How since he at least knows the people, his interpolation will probably be more reliable than anybody else's interpolation.
0: (laughs) Yes. And (laughs) one of the most interesting aspects, I didn't catch this until like the third or fourth time it happened, was when he started talking for me. Where he said, and now you say, dear reader, this, and he talks for you, and then he replies to you. And it wasn't until the third or fourth time that I thought, wait a minute, (laughs) I didn't actually say that to him at all.
1: (laughs) Yes. And and so the reader in italics will address the narrator and sometimes they will get in a fight. Uh, And sometimes I intentionally craft it so that what Mycroft imagines the reader is saying is very much what you were feeling. So Mycroft has been doing something weird and then you yell at him and say, hey, Mycroft, why are you doing something weird? And the italic text very much matches what you, the actual reader, are thinking. But at other times the opinions stated by Mycroft's imaginary reader are nothing like ours because Mycroft's imaginary reader exists in Mycroft's future, so later than 2454. And so his assumptions about what our values are, what we find shocking and not shocking, are in no way 21st century values. And we learn a lot about Mycroft's world from what values he imagines his future reader will have when he imagines his future reader will be upset or contemptuous or happy or, uh, in anxiety or, uh, in suspense teaches us about his world.
0: Yes. A, a, one of the most interesting aspects about that was that, uh, the way gender is handled in the world and the fact that Mycroft is constantly, uh, misgendering people and he's doing it intentionally and he's telling you that he's doing it, but why, why would you have him misgender people like that? I was curious. (laughs)
1: well and, and and especially as the conversation about transgender issues has broadened in our current conversation it's hard to say You know, he is gendering people based on his idiosyncratic opinions of people's personalities. Mm -hmm. So the gender doesn't match biology and the gender also doesn't match people's visual presentation of themselves. And a gender also doesn't match people's personal choice about pronouns. So it doesn't match the way gender has been done in the past, nor does it match any of the new progressive ways that gender is being handled now. He's using gender as a set of ideas about personality traits that he's assigning this is somebody in a future where gender is no longer discussed trying to do gender and messing up because just as we try to write medieval stuff and mess up uh, or people try to use the and thou in in fiction and often mess up because people don't quite understand the way it was wielded. So he's wielding, gender in his own way, which he feels himself is historically authentic, but which we who live in a society that genders all sorts of things know is not authentic to any particular time period. Mm -hmm. So we learn about how gender is being handled in Mycroft's world from how he messes up when attempting to use gender in a society that isn't used to using it.
0: Do you get the impression Mycroft thought this would be read in his lifetime? Because I kind of think he wouldn't be misgendering people that he would knew he would interact with if they were going to read it while he was still alive.
1: I mean, as the permissions page says at the beginning, it has been published with the permissions of all free and unfree living persons herein portrayed. Uh, and I have worked out myself in great detail how he what would have happened when he goes to each of the relevant people and talks to them about why it's going to be printed and we'll learn more in the subsequent volumes about why it's been published at all, how those permissions were secured, uh, who is and isn't comfortable with it. But one of Mycroft's attributes, and he talks about this at one point, is that everyone believes him to be insane. So since everyone is confident that he's insane, nobody's really bothered that he's doing crazy things with gender pronouns, because he's doing much crazier things also. Uh, so he just expects his readers to, uh, dismiss that as one more mad thing that he's doing. But at the same time, it lets him and it lets me through him make lots of interesting points about gender by, uh, making the, the real reader comfortable with the gender and then switching it around and making you uncomfortable again and pushing on all the different ways the gender pronouns can be used and misused, which every time Mycroft shifts around gender on you in some unexpected way, creates a new moment where you, the real reader, can think about how those pronouns feel, which, one, which changes feel comfortable, which changes feel uncomfortable, and we can therefore learn about ourselves as we read and learn how we react to gender by seeing it used weirdly.
0: Yes, I I felt a lot of this book is about the reaction of the reader as they're reading it. Yes, um, but I think I'm going to get into that in just a bit, uh, yeah. because talking about the world building, I so it, we read this in my book group, and one of the people mentioned that reading this was like looking at one of those magic eye posters, <laughs> where as slowly you see the thing come into being as you as you get all the pieces. Yes, this is. So this feels like one of the most extreme show versus tell things I've ever read. Like back back in the day used to be a common convention to at some point the narration just explain things like, oh, and by the way, these are the cars, they fly and etc. And in this book, like there is almost nothing that is told directly. All of it right. is shown piecemeal and it's. I mean, I, I, I see this happening more often. It's growing in popularity, but it seems like an intense amount of work.
1: It is, and one of the fun things about it is, of course, one of the ways that I do the showing is by doing lots of telling because mycroft is constantly interrupting to explain things, but yeah. he's not interrupting to explain the things that you're actually learning. He's interrupting to explain the history of... This particular school of psychotaxonomic science and how it's related to things that happened in the 23rd century, several centuries before his own, uh, or or he's going on about Voltaire. Um, And in the course of him telling you about Voltaire, it shows you what has happened to, for example, torture and judicial punishment in his future. So by having the narrator tell you one thing, I show you a different thing at the same time. So every time Mycroft tells you something, it shows you something else. Uh, because often, if you're having a character do it, telling is showing. Because telling one thing shows you a lot of things about the character and the world as well.
0: It seems like that results in a much higher word count. Have you found that to be the case?
1: Uh, I mean, I'm sure that the word count is higher than if I started it with a clunky two-page summary of the political situation. Um, but I, but I don't think it's that much higher than it would be for the same amount of content to pass because you're, you know, when Mycroft stops to tell you one of these asides, you know, it's often one paragraph. So let's say it's a hundred words or maybe 200 words. But in the course of it, you often get shown a whole bunch of different things about him, about his relationships with other people that he's talking about, about the history of this world, about how its judicial process functions, which you're going to need to know later on. So in many ways, I think it seems like a very wordy way to get it across. But because I make sure every one of those tangents actually communicates 10 or 12 different things, I don't think it actually increases the overall word count very much, given how much world I'm, and how much character I'm trying to get across.
0: Yeah. Speaking of, of the world, when uh, we met at Worldcon, you said it took you five years to write this?
1: Well, it took me five years to do the world building and then six months to outline the book and then one year to actually write
0: it. Right. But the, the five years and the six months, just that is incredible. Were you just creating this entire world before you even knew like the storyline and the characters that you were going to put in it?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, world and characters tend to materialize together. An important thing to keep in mind is that I will be world building one project while writing the next one. So while writing this book series, I've been world building several more future worlds. And for, I mean, worlds for future series. And while I was world building this one, I was working on other earlier fiction projects, which have not been published, but you know, we're, the important practice I needed to get good enough to do this one. So there's never a point where I'm sitting there not writing for five years, wishing I could write, waiting for the world to get done. I'm (laughs) writing one thing while we're building the next one, but it it comes very slowly. And usually uh, a, a notion for a character will come into being. And that notion for a character will also imply that person's occupation and that person's relationship to the rest of the world, which will then fill in, other details that need to exist, and then it'll all interlace together. Uh, and then I'll start asking myself questions about this world. What is its currency? Why is its currency that way? How does it, you know, what is its social safety net? What keeps people from dying in a gutter? Which is always an important question to ask about any world
0: mm.
1: uh, when you're designing it. And so uh, it, it comes together piecemeal and very gradually, and then I'm not satisfied with it until I really can answer tons of questions about you know what are tastes in art like how how does the taste in collecting old art affect the sales of new art you know lots of arbitrary things about societies that uh that are true of real society and therefore need to be worked out for an imaginary society to feel fully realized
0: and what influences uh influence your work here when you're when you're doing all this world building
1: Uh, Everything. (laughs) I mean, uh, Sometimes it'll be that I'm reading a historical source and I'll run across the fact that this historical source dealt with something totally different from the way we do. So let's say they dealt with the manufacture of shoes completely differently from the way we do. And then I'll think, wow, I have to come up with how they deal with the manufacture of shoes in my imaginary world as well. So it'll often be a question awoken by a historical source, but sometimes it'll be... Other things, uh, just a, a, a feeling or a notion or a visual image that gives me an idea uh, or another piece of fiction where there's a – often it'll be an interesting moral dilemma mm-hmm. that, a, that a character faces and I'll think, oh, that was a really interesting moral dilemma. But it would have been even more interesting if there was also this other pressure on them. How could I create a situation where a character would face that similar moral dilemma but in a different situation?
0: Are you familiar with the Ribbon Farm blog at all? No, I'm not. Oh, I recently ran across a uh, an older article from there, the uh, c- called Consent of the Surveilled, which postulated that governments need the pre- uh, consent of the people they govern, and that used to be people who have settled, which uh, who are easily countable and taxable, and so forth, and the hard to count mm-hmm. populations like nomads and Roma were always a trouble for governments. And the argument was that as people got more and more mobile, uh, governments would start to lose their physical boundaries and would have to start uh, governing in in groups of people who consent to being surveilled. And in return for this sort of universal surveillance, they get various government services, which reminded me instantly of uh, your amazing flying cars and the fact that everyone is under constant surveillance by the trackers.
1: Yes. Uh, and, and that great moment where you've had it introduced that there are trackers and then you realize that people can just turn them off voluntarily. Yeah. Uh, which is always a sort of surprising twist because we're used to, to fiction where there's universal surveillance and of course you can't turn it off. That would be, uh, that would be unthinkable. But the, um uh non-geographic nations that this world is filled with these hives you know the core of it is that you can effortlessly switch from one to another in the course of about 48 hours you can change your citizenship from one to another uh and in that situation governments are held to a very high degree of accountability because if you don't like something that they're doing you can just leave and they have no more power over you uh and it postulates a system where yeah there's a lot of surveillance but that surveillance in fact, go along with a large degree of trust because if any government is exposed, to losing
0: you're, you're, you're breaking up. Uh, last thing I heard was that, uh, the government's being held to a much higher standard if people are. Yeah, eith-
1: or rather, there's a, there's an instant action that an individual can take if dissatisfied. One of the problems with geographic nations is that there's comparatively little you can do in immediately to respond to a situation where the government is exercising tyrannical power.
0: And when but, you can switch on the fly, the, it puts a lot of pressure on governments to not be so terrible, or to at least fulfill exactly. what their citizens want. Exactly. I, I love that there was these, uh, the Masons, they sort of uh, neo-reactionary monarchy that lots yes, of people they have love. Yes, have an
1: absolute monarchy for people who feel like having an absolute monarchy. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's an absolute monarchy where if you don't like the absolute monarch, you can... Leave the absolute monarchy within 24 hours. Right. And uh, in such a situation, that absolute monarch is held to an extremely high standard of comportment.
0: Uh, so I was wondering before we get into things that might be spoilers, and some of our listeners may want to uh, leave and read the book before listening to the second half. Um, mm-hmm. I-, I may have missed this while I was reading because sometimes I do miss things, but why the title To Like the Lightning?
1: Ah. The title, Too Like the Lightning, is in no way made clear in book one. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the problems with the title. Uh, And and for a long time, we played around with changing the title. But the the quotation from Romeo and Juliet that it comes from, um, which if I give the full couplet, is uh, Too Like the Lightning, which doth cease to be ere one can say it lightens. Uh, was the line that gave me the idea for the structure for the whole series and was actually the sort of beginning seed of it. Uh, and I think that the meaning of that line will come to be a lot clearer to people who have finished reading book two. Okay. Um, the only real clue in book one is a point at which, uh, Mycroft is using heavy metaphor to discuss. Uh, a threat coming in on society and sort of looking out the window and seeing in a flash of lightning uh, the fact that there is something important out there that you don't quite understand or see yet, but at least you had a vision of it. Ah. And uh, Mycroft, in that metaphor, says, uh, says about Bridger, you know, I am the window through which you see the coming storm. He is the lightning. So that is the only real clue in book one. But if the title didn't become clear, don't worry. It's not clear.
0: Okay. So speaking of – we're, we're going to get into spoilers now. If you want to read the book, I really recommend you do so before you listen to the rest of the episode. But, hey, it's your life. Uh, speaking of seeing this coming storm of terrible, horrible things that are going to happen, uh, I – I as, as I mentioned when uh, when I met you at Worldcon, I had just gotten to the point in the book where – You've met this wonderful person, he's really self-effacing and humble, he tries to help people, he's a great guy and I enjoy reading along with him, and then I discover that he is a rapist and a murderer and a torturer. And a cannibal. And a cannibal, yes, uh, and as as I had to stop reading for a few days, which was okay because the Worldcon was at that point and yeah, I wouldn't have had time to read anyway, but... <laughs> yeah. But I, no,
1: it's a huge shock, and almost almost everyone I've talked to who has read it, has an acute visual memory of where they were sitting or standing when they got to that mm-hmm. page, because it's just a shock of a different kind that 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 really to you, uh, you know, and Mycroft warned you, right? He, he told you on the first page that you would hate him, that his crimes would make you hate him, and later on, there's that part where. Uh, some drunk humanists are threatening, uh, some utopians and threaten, I'll go all Mycroft canner on your ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there is seeding, but nobody ever sort of believes that. Uh, and I've talked to lots of people who got to that point and said, you know, I thought his crimes were like surveillance related or <laughs> hacking related or something. And it's, it's no matter how bad you believe they are, they are worse than than you could think. And and I designed that very carefully to be worse than you could think. And the, the reasons for that continue to unpack in the second book okay.
0: as well I, well. I get, I get some feeling of, of what the reasons are, especially by the end of the book. I, I get the feeling that this was necessary in a way to keep the worldwide genocides from breaking out for at least a few more years. Um, mm. But I, and I may be totally wrong about this, but my 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 problem isn't with the the justification. My problem is that I I almost feel like you cheated because I would, I can understand being forced to to torture and murder and rape the people you love if it would save the world. Because as they said, you should be willing to sacrifice any subset of the world to save the whole world because you would have lost that subset anyway. Mm-hmm. Um. But when, when when his crimes are described, you feel the visceral pleasure that he took in them. And yeah. I, I cannot square in my head a person who enjoyed doing those things and this nice person. And I feel like in the real world, those two people cannot exist. And the fact that you made them the same character really, like, it, it grates in me.
1: Yeah, and there's there's a very strong tension between this Mycroft as we know him and that Mycroft as we get glimpses of him and as he surfaces sometimes through the the other Mycroft that we understand differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in part, that tension is very intentional and going to be explored more in Book 2 as we understand how this transformation came over Mycroft. Um, But another part of this, again, returns to the 18th century roots of the text, uh there are lots of great 18th century philosophers like Voltaire and Beccaria who make us feel wonderful about humanity and and do things like abolish torture, which is excellent. Uh, but there are also darker Enlightenment philosophers who push the same intellectual principles of pure reason in more uncomfortable directions. And one of these that, as you know, the book eventually starts addressing is the Marquis de Sade. And one of the incredibly powerful, uncomfortable things that the Marquis de Sade does seriously in his philosophy, separate from the reputation that he has, is push on the edges of how far you're willing to follow reason. And if reason would push you to do something unspeakable uh, and gross and that makes you sick just to think about it, and yet reason is pushing you in that direction, do we still call reason sacred at that point? Uh, and it's a very interesting conversation that he has and that Diderot also has about the sort of dark underbelly of how far are you really willing to follow pure philosophy if it leads you to dark directions. And so I wanted to bring the reader into a new version of Saad's conversation uh, and having Mycroft's crimes be basically a list of the things that the Marquis de Saad asks us if we are willing to condone in the name of reason is my way of recreating that kind of conversation.
0: So I you you first of all I got to say I thought you did so splendidly but the it, it's it's really the joy that he took in it like I I mean I know I I understand utilitarianism utilitarianism is probably the way we want to go but at heart I'm I'm more of a virtue ethicist and mm-hmm. I just I mean, do you believe that someone who actually enjoyed doing those things could reform to become the kind of person Minecraft does? Because I don't, I don't think I have that level of ability to forgive in me. I just, I don't think that's possible in a real human.
1: So I'm going to say, I don't have a good sense of that in real human psychology. And I don't think our psychological science understands that yet. But Keep in mind that Mycroft also has access to things beyond the mundane mm. uh, because Mycroft has been with Bridger and with jedd Mason right and as the narrative starts to hint at the very end, these are things something beyond that with which humans within the walls of nature normally come into contact uh, and so we one question we have with mycroft is is this transformation one of psychology or is this transformation one of metaphysical intervention? And that's a question which will continue to be asked and explored in the second book as we learn more about Mycroft, learn more about what Mycroft was like when young Learn more about the specific feelings that Mycroft had while doing these things. Learn more about the feeling, My- feelings My- Mycroft has now, and along with Mycroft, who himself is struggling to understand how much he has changed, mm-hmm. uh, will ourselves as readers work on trying to understand what has happened.
0: Okay, I am. I am looking very forward to seeing if I am brought along and and. To wonder what that says about me if I do change my mind. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I... Yeah,
1: Because in many ways, Mycroft also doesn't know whether his change was supernatural or psychological. And if you're wondering that and being bothered by that question about somebody else, imagine how much more terrifying it is to wonder that about yourself.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you brought up Bridger, and I'm going to jump into Bridger right now then. Uh, at first, uh, since a lot of these names seem to have significance, at first I thought it was kind of a uh, a play on the uh, the Pontifex Maximus. Um, but, see, at first I was annoyed that there was this miracle-working entity within my hard SF book. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, but then I got to the point where uh, J.E.D., or, or Jehovah, says, uh, I believe his line was, The protagonist of every work of fiction is humanity, and the antagonist is God. And mm-hmm. that, that stuck with me still to this day because it felt to me almost... I don't know if you intended it this way, but it felt to me like one of the biggest fourth-wall breaks I've ever encountered, or at least in the past numerous years. It like I interpret it as saying the the protagonist of every work of fiction is humanity as in the audience. That, in this case, in the case of a novel, we, the reader insert ourselves as the protagonist into the story and we represent the human struggle in that story and the antagonist is god because he sets all the forces against us or in this case she because the the god of a story is literally the author who creates all the conflict who decides where things are going and it, it it seemed to me almost to be saying you, the reader are the protagonist. I, as God am the person who is tormenting you and making you feel these horrible things because I enjoy that. And secretly you enjoy it too. And I got the feeling is, is Bridger meant as like your literal bridge into the world, where as the author, you are allowed to do anything you like.
1: Mm, so, so the, the name is discussed, uh, in books two. Okay. Um, so there will be a moment there where Mycroft says what the reason for the name is. Um, uh, the the line that you're referring to and that set of questions that you started to have are absolutely intentional and are again returning to, in particular, the Diderot book that I, I talked about basing this on. Uh, in the Enlightenment, one of the major ways that people often talked about god, whether it was a Christian god or often a deist kind of god, is as the author of the world or the author of the Great Scroll mm. uh, that plans everything out. And if you look at works like Voltaire's Candide, Candide is about a version of providence which is very authorial, in which every character that's introduced has some important consequence for the hero, and every event that happens, even the ones that seem arbitrary, turn out to have some significant meaning in the end, and every narrative thread it gets woven back together cunningly at the end, uh, and it's Voltaire's portrait of a world with providence, a world with an author. Uh, and then when Diderot w- wrote Shock the Fatalist, Diderot was an atheist, and he intentionally sat down to re- write the opposite, to write a book which resembles a universe with no god. So it's absolute chaos, and things happen at random, and nothing leads to anything, and characters just show up and then leave again, and you never meet them again, and they have no story arcs. Hmm. And it doesn't go anywhere, and there's no foreshadowing because there's nothing to foreshadow, and then it just sort of stops.
0: <laughs> so bad as unfulfilling uh, as real life. And it's-
1: really <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> engrossing it's hard to describe how engrossing this book is it's engrossing because Diderot has that incredibly emotionally intense relationship with the reader just like Micro does when he's talking to you and saying oh reader you want this thing to happen but I'm gonna make this, this other thing happen oh trust me this other thing is better don't know oh, you want to see the first thing I'll show you the first thing but I'm warning you it's really boring <laughs> you don't want to see you know, it's just this amazing relationship that you develop with Diderot in the course of reading this book that is pure chaos um And so the engagement, that engagement with providence, is providence an author, is God an author, is a major 18th century thread and one that I wanted to explore here as well. I don't intend this universe to be a universe reflecting me. I have a very specific idea of uh, the metaphysics of this universe, which the characters are trying to explore through, partly through the question of God as author. But one of the one of the literary and philosophical practices of the Enlightenment was the practice of theopsychology. Okay. Theopsychology is the attempt to deduce the personality of God from observing his creation. Oh.
0: That, um, so so.
1: so looking around the world and saying you know there are flowers therefore god must appreciate beauty and have kindness this is an argument that is made by arthur conan doyle in the holmes stories actually has holmes conclude that god must be kind because of the existence of flowers or others who will say yeah as voltaire does look at the lisbon earthquake god seems to be cruel Mm -hmm. Um, and so the characters in this book Some of them, those of them who believe in providence and believe that there is a hand guiding uh, their actions, are attempting to practice theopsychology. They're attempting to figure out what the maker of this world is like. Uh, And I... In turn, have thought hard about what kinds of conclusions those characters are going to come to about if there is a maker of this world, what the maker of that world is
0: like yes, and specifically because of that, Jehovah is my like my favorite character in this book, and I mean he's first of all he's like a rationalist and he's a stone cold badass, which just I love those things too <laughs> but but the fact that when his uh underling oh I forget his name now the the hound.
1: Shagatai. Guy, uh, Gibraltar Chagatai.
0: Okay, when, when he talks about Jehovah and says that uh, Jehovah hates this world and he just doesn't know it yet, and if he <laughs> were to meet the god of this world, he would scream himself hoarse in rage. Oh, Dominic. That's Dominic. Yes, Dominic. Dominic that way. was him. Yes. yes. And that, that yes. for the way this world has has been created, and I, <laughs> I, I feel uh, often very similar things that if this world had a god, he would have a lot to answer to, and and the fact that it is such a a world where physical violence is such an effective tool is just infuriating, and, and, right. and I love Javoha. and I it I feels
1: unconscionable. Jehovah. And how can you ever, how can you ever respect the being that made that decision?
0: Yes, are we uh, are we, we going to see those more? These sorts
1: of questions that. 18th century authors asked all the time, even in 18th century science fiction.
0: Huh. You
1: know, Voltaire wrote science fiction. He wrote Micromegas, which is about an alien from the planet Ceres and another alien from Saturn coming oh, to the geez. Earth and making first contact with humans. Yes. Oh, uh, and they make first contact with humans. And the first thing about is, do you think that Descartes is right about the immaterial nature of the soul, and is Thomas Aquinas right about this other thing? And what do you think of you can deduce about the nature of providence from this? Because that's what the big conversation was in the Enlightenment, so that's what they assumed aliens would care about, is the nature of God metaphysics. You know, when we write first contact stories, we often have characters, have the aliens be concerned with things we're concerned with, like politics or the relationship between technology and nature, or heroism or, you know, virtue politics, uh, virtue ethics versus deontology. But for Voltaire, it was obvious that aliens would be interested in providence and the, the, the nature of God. So I thought, how fascinating would it be to write a modern work of science fiction set in a very well-developed, World, an almost gold age esque world with its fun flying cars and tower- towers of glass and steel, and all of the tools of a robust science fiction genre. But then to ask of it the questions that Voltaire asked of his extremely primitive science fiction by having the characters trying to figure out providence.
0: And I love that your your society is a utopia. You so rarely see that anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a it's It's funny, lots of people have discussed whether it's a utopia or whether it's a dystopia or whether a utopian surface or or other such things uh, and uh, and I think it has a lot to do with how you define utopia okay. uh, if you define utopia as a world where I, uh, okay so uh, you know a utopia is supposed to be like a perfect world and like the author's ideal of where everyone would live, and this is clearly not that because this is a world that also has flaws and it has great stuff in it. Uh, I think that to feel utopian to us, a science fiction world has to be such that people equivalent to the reader and everyone that the reader feels is a coequally human with the reader must live a better and happier existence than we do now
0: and I got that and, impression
1: and everyone the 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 proviso of the reader and everyone the reader feels is coequal with them is an important one because if you look at early twentieth century science fiction, you'll often have things which are a utopia for men right. but not for women. But the reader didn't feel women to be coequal with him at that point. Uh and if you look at contemporary utopias, it's very difficult uh right now to write a utopia that people feel comfortable with unless artificial intelligences also have civil rights, because we've already started the process of feeling that artificial intelligences or uh, modified, intelligent, uplifted animals uh, should be equivalent to us. And you can sort of no longer write a book in which... Uh, people are great, are in a wonderful situation, but robots are all enslaved and still have your reader feel like it's a utopia.
0: Yes. Oh, man, which reminds me of the Set Sets, which, when when I first met them, were the wonderful people who, you know, they're discriminated against, but they're witty and they're smart, and they're, they're basically uplifted, living the digital life, and then near the end, you discover that they're these basically, like, philosophical zombies who don't change and basically have no inner life at all, and it was freaky and give me the shivers
1: yeah that but they're so happy uh <laughs> yeah. it's it's the same it's the same question huxley asked asked us of if you have a person who's mind controlled to be happy or conditioned to be happy is that conscionable uh and pushes on a question which is one of the big moral questions for this imagined future of Uh, do people have a right to raise their children in a way which will make the children happy, but make the children unable to interface with life in a, in the way that most people do? Uh, and I was interested in that question just because every, you know, every point in human history, and particularly for us, every couple of decades has had a new big moral quandary that we've wrestled with, whether it's feminism or whether it's racial equal rights or whether it's transgender stuff. And so, to me, it wasn't plausible to create a future that didn't have within it whatever its new big social tension was uh, and and so I imagined this as being its social tension, this social tension over set sets which open which relates to a broader social tension of over our parents is it is it child abuse to raise your children so that the children are sort of walked into a particular kind of life, even if that life is happy? Or is that not child abuse and is that simply passing on your culture? Uh, and so having that be pushed to this very uncomfortable edge by the set sets who are so happy and yet so incredibly unfree in their life choices uh, is, a uh, I felt, a nicely nice thing to be the friction point for this future social tension.
0: So this may be an unfair question because I'm assuming you just kind of want to put this out there and let the reader decide, but if I'm going to ask anyway and don't answer if you don't want to, how would you come down on the question of whether it is morally permissible to, to make beings that cannot change and grow and become other people?
1: Um, my personal answer to that is very similar to my, uh, answer to the questions of, uh, censorship and the need to defend icky speech. um, you know, in in real life, separate from putting censorship stuff all over the fiction that I'm writing, uh, I'm very interested in free speech advocacy, and I'm a member of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and so on. Yes. And that kind of thing often puts you in a position where you have to decide to you have to fight to defend something you yourself find dis- disgusting. Yeah, and and pushes you to the edge of your moral will. To say, am I willing to fight for freedom of speech for something that I think is worthless and gross, like really disgusting pornography? Mm -hmm. And the answer there is that the hammer of the law is very clumsy. And if we allow it to ban a kind of speech we find disgusting, we often find that it accidentally also bans a kind of speech that is very valuable. And so similarly, I think with the set-set situation, at least in a world like the one I have imagined, which is only a couple centuries in our future where social progress and legal systems have progressed some but not a lot, there would be no way for them to ban set-sets without that ban also being used to affect others. Like, oh, so you want to raise your child speaking Japanese. Well, Japanese is not the normal language but he speaks so mm. you know that should be banned too because you're making it hard for you
0: i think we maybe- that
1: law would be dangerous one are
0: you wait are you getting me i'm still here okay i'm,
1: th- I'm hearing you perfectly i never stopped hearing you
0: okay I, I think i missed just the last sentence that you were saying about the japanese banning okay
1: uh that that the hammer of that law would be a clumsy one okay uh i think that in a world in which you can trust everyone's behavior or in which legislation is perfect, it would be great to forbid that because I think being a set set in many ways remove uh, a set set being being someone who's psychologically incapable of development removes a lot of what it means to be human. Yeah. Uh, but that in order to ban that, we would also harm other things. There's a brilliant two-page short story by Voltaire, which I love, um, which I think Mycroft actually tells in the course of uh, book two at one point, um, called The Story of the Good Brahmin. Uh, maybe he tells it. I don't actually remember if he does. Um, but the story is about this Brahmin from imaginary Persia. Many Enlightenment French stories are set in imaginary Persia, uh, which does not in any way resemble real Persia, but is an important landscape of their literary world. And uh, there's a Brahmin, uh, and he's a very smart, handsome, intelligent, born to a wealthy family. His parents die when he's fairly young, so he's the master of his own estate, and everyone loves and respects him, and the greatest men of his city all dine at his house every day. And he's not the governor, but the magistrates all come to him for advice, so his word you know, dictates law whenever he wants to, but he has no real responsibilities. It's sort of a perfect life. Um, but he is plagued by the desire to know things. Uh, but to know where the world came from, to know how it 's put together, so he decides to give up this perfect life and travel and starts traveling to to different schools and universities and visiting different wise men to study their teachings. And the more he studies and the more he studies, the more he just ends up with more and more questions and not answers. And he finds himself driven by curiosity more and more until he exhausts himself in the pursuit of answers, enjoying it, but but nonetheless never quite getting the satisfaction that he wants. And then as an old man, he decides that he wants to travel home to die in his homeland rather than in a strange land. So he goes home, and when he Gets home, he encounters at his house a woman who he remembers from before he left. Who is one of his servants, and she is a woman who we would say is a, a, a mentally retarded or a, a mentally differently abled person. Mm-hmm. Um, as described by Voltaire, and she is on her way home from the mosque, where she's just had a religious service, which she loved and didn't understand at all, but it made her really happy, and she works tending his garden and has been tending his garden all the time he's been gone. And he realizes, talking to her, that she is the happiest person he has ever met, because she is perfectly satisfied with her life, she takes great joy in this religion that she can't possibly understand, and she has never had any questions or desires which couldn't be settled. And uh, looking at her, the Brahmin felt um, she was the happiest person he had ever met, and he had spent his life in unhappiness, and yet he would not exchange his lot for hers, nor would you, reader, exchange your lot for hers. In right. this amazing moment when Voltaire turns into the second person on us. Uh, and in that story, Voltaire is describing something, a thing for which we don't really have a good name, that is more important than happiness. Uh, that is part of what it means to be human and that many people value and it's that which is undermined by what a set set is and how a set set is in in a sense anathema to an important but not very well named essence of what it is to be human sorry that was a long answer to the <laughs> to the question
0: <laughs> no that was a, that was a great but, answer
1: uh but so that's how i feel but uh, as the world of Mycroft's experience demonstrates, it's one of these situations where uh, a law against it would endanger many other things, such as passing on our religions and cultures and heritages, uh, since it is a very uh slippery margin between what is a set set and what is uh, a child who lives in a small community.
0: So it looks like we're coming up on the one hour. I think we may have passed it, actually. do Is there anything that uh, you would have liked for me to ask you, which I didn't get around to asking?
1: Uh, uh, no, I mean, you had lots of great questions. Uh, and and I'm glad that you were uh, particularly excited by J.E.T.D. Mason. I will, I will personally look forward to hearing what you think of him after you have finished book two.
0: Ooh, there's going to be more of him then, yes? Uh,
1: when we learn much. Yes, yes. Awesome. Uh, as we as we come more and more to center on him and Bridger and Mycroft as the sort of axes around which things are moving.
0: Fantastic! I'm looking forward to this. When will it be out?
1: Uh, February 21st, I think is the exact day. Yes.
0: Okay, not that it, much longer.
1: Yes, not that much longer. I wish it was sooner. It was originally December, but it got pushed back so that they can put out a paperback of two, like The Lightning, before Seven Surrenders comes out.
0: Ah, well, that's that's uh, a decent reason, I guess.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, but And I finished up all of the last-minute touches and uh, page-proof corrections, so it's now in final form, and next I'm going to be... Well, actually, I'm working now on book four, because book three is already done.
0: Wow, moving right yes. along. Yes, yes. So book two is called...
1: Book two is seven surrenders. Okay. I can't hear you. I don't know if you can hear me.
0: And unfortunately, at this point, we got cut off for the third time, and we had trouble reconnecting, and eventually we just gave up. So there are no formal goodbyes, but Ada says goodbye to everybody, and thank you for listening, and I do as well. Thanks. Bye.